Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writer's Block Podcast. I'm your host, J.R. Havlin. Tonight's episode brought to you by Air. It's free, unless you're putting it in your tires. My guest is longtime SNL Weekend Update alum, Doug Abels. Doug and I discussed the first thing that made us laugh. Bonus points if you guessed someone getting hit on the head with a frying pan. I share a quick story about my earliest comedy-inspired Halloween costume, and Doug explains how he was always a fan of comedy, but was initially not so bold as to believe it was possible for him to pursue it as a career. We talk, as always, about humble beginnings, as well as humbling beginnings, and also about the different ways you can end up learning the voice of the people you're writing for. In one particular case for Doug, those people were Jimmy Fallon and Tina Fey. This is like sort of what made me kind of get Tina's voice. There was a story about a study that found that um, and I'm probably getting the statistic wrong, but it was like, you know, 60% of women are unhappy with the appearance of their vaginas. Uh, and I wrote a joke, the punchline, which was, and from what I've seen, they're right. Um, I wrote that joke thinking like, oh, I should write this for Jimmy. And the joke got picked, but it was Tina that did that joke. And she killed with it. It did really well. And that was sort of what made me real. Like, then I kind of like, oh, yeah, of course. Then that's, that's when I joke. realized I'm sexist. <laughs> I am so sexist. <laughs> exactly. It's one of the things I love about this episode, the behind-the-scenes stories Doug shares about his own personal experiences in the writer's room. They're obviously unique, and yet something almost every comedy writer can immediately and intimately relate to. It's great stuff, so let's get to it. This is episode 43. My guest is Doug Abels. I'm J.R. Havlin. You're part of the writer's block now. Good choice. That's what I'm talking about. I've done that before. Go ahead, talk it up. Okay. No, I was saying that this microphone looks like it makes me feel like I'm being interviewed by Jack Parr because it's so humongous. That's right. I feel like, uh, as your guest, maybe I should be lighting up a cigarette and we should have this conversation while smoking. Wouldn't that? Wouldn't that the, always the? Uh, um, I, I love. I love watching those old clips of the talk shows where people are smoking. I mean, you don't have to go that far back. I feel like I've seen no. interviews with Sean Penn smoking. <laughs> you know? She was chain smoking um, yeah. on, the, on the Tonight Show. Did Carson ever smoke on camera? I'm trying to think. He, I feel like I know did. The host. I don't know what host that smoked. What host smoked? I guess Johnny did not smoke. I don't know. I feel like I can envision him puffing on a cigarette. Puffing. Yeah. Wow. Puffing. 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 Yeah. <laughs> and huffing. Puffing. Save it for the marijuana. That's like a marijuana. That's like that's like a giveaway for somebody who doesn't really smoke weed. Like I have puffed on it before. <laughs> Have you? Have you? That's like in 40-Year-Old Virgin when Steve Carell describes what breasts feel like. Like bags of sand. <laughs> like sandbags. Big bags of sand. Here we go. We're we're here at uh, Doug Abel's. That's always... That's a problem, isn't it's it? It's a With big the problem. S ending and names. S and then a hyphen. And yeah. When Did I you just go S hyphen? hyphen? Yeah, S hyphen. It's very... Will it's you ever, do you ever go S hyphen S? Is that a... Is that uh, necessary? No, no. I think you, you just do... 
Uh, yeah. And no matter what. We're two what, writers. We should probably know that, right? I don't know from that. <laughs> my, I don't, you know, my punctuation is purely based purely on how I want somebody to read something. I yeah. have no idea whether or not it's correct. Right. And I don't give a shit. <laughs> I couldn't care less. What difference does it make? You know, if I, like, it, sometimes I'm very conscious of it when I'm writing a letter to somebody. Yes. Or something. Yeah. Or, or I'm writing some sort of official thing. And I'll be like, I really don't know if a comma goes here or not. <laughs> I could be in trouble. I'm not going to get that. It's that thing, and then you just were like, you're like, you know what? I'm just going to pick a different word. (laughs) Yeah, fuck this word, (laughs) fuck the whole thing. I'm just going to scrap it. Doug Abels is my guest, and he uh, was a writer for Saturday Night Live for a decade. Let's go ahead and put it in decade terms. Wow, that's hot. That's hot. That's hot. Hot Hot as in sexy. Yes, that would be the correct. Way to describe it. It was very, very sexy. <laughs> Extremely sexy. We'll yeah. talk about that. Uh, you've had uh, a number of other. You worked. Uh, did you work with Bill Maher? You did, uh, right? I did. Yeah, okay. for uh, a stint. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, a, we, a, a stint or two. All right. We've had these little discussions. Doug and I are working right now on a project, and we've had a few discussions about uh, other uh, experiences we've had with uh, uh, with similar people, similar hosts. I worked for mm-hmm. uh, Bill as well for a short period of time. In a different capacity, you were actually a writer on staff for a couple of years. Right, and you were his fluffer. Right? I was a fluffer. Right. Let's start at the uh, beginning, though, with uh, um, Doug Abel's. What's the what's the, like the first thing that made you laugh as a kid? Do you remember like being yeah being uh, drawn to uh, comedy? This uh, that's a great question. I I can clearly remember watching being a little kid and watching a Marx Brothers movie on. TV uh, and we have just so much in common laughing out loud and then I think that was like the first thing that really you know the first actual bit of comedy that really made me laugh um I, I it was just hilarious to me and then as I got older I think the thing I start I was listening to like comedy records which when I was a kid growing up I'm you know I'm 54 or 55 I just turned 55 but um, so like when I was growing up, like comedy albums were like the thing, you know, there were no, like, there was no comedy central. There was no HBO comedy specials, but Robert, like that. but that is the story for both of us. It's like when I was a kid, when I was a kid <laughs> back in my day, oh my we God. Had to I can't a, believe a record. Album. I can't believe this is where I am in my life right now. We, that we I had to balance a nickel that on I the under- end of an arm for a record player to that, keep it down on the album. <laughs> it's alarming that i utter sentences like that the comedy album thing yeah is a very common it's sort of like the uh, um almost famous she gives him the records but their yes, music records yes, makes a big effect yes, on his life yes. a lot of times i've talked to a number of people where they found their mothers or their brothers or whatever you know comedy albums yeah. they turn it on and it's like what's this oh my god yeah and I, that's exactly what i mean like there we had a bill cosby album in the house and my older sister had a Robert Klein uh, album, and I can remember, you know, listening to those over and over again. And you know, when I was in high school, I and I discovered Monty Python on TV. Like I was a, you know, an instant fan. And I went to see them at um, they they toured and they came to perform in New York City at um, at the City Center. And I went to see them, Monty Python. Oh, oh really? Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah, in ni- 19, this was probably like 1976. And uh, uh, I, a couple of my nerdy friends and I got tickets. We went into the city. We saw them. I never laughed so hard in my life. It was amazing. 
to me, that was like the closest I'll ever come to like experiencing like Beatlemania or what it would have been like to see, have seen the Beatles like when they came to New York, came to America in like 19... They did sketches? Yeah, they did a whole sketch show. They did... Um, they I had love that they videos. Like yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, that must be the greatest thing in the world to be like one of those guys in Monty Python. And like, that's what you do. You sit around together and think of funny skits to write and then do them. Oh, you hadn't thought that before that? I had no, but the thing is I had that thought, but I didn't go from that thought to the and make the leap of like, oh, I want to do that. Like I can do that. So I went through like a a long long dormancy where I didn't do anything comedy related in like college. But you're like post you're you're, in, you're 17, 18 years old at that point. Yes, yeah. but it didn't but it wasn't like, oh, I want to like pursue this somehow, right. you know like Judd Apatow and, and there are many, so many other places where Judd and I do have so many, some, no, I'm not, <laughs> I'm trying to say, I'm not trying to compare myself to Judd Apatow, but like, it seems like he knew even in like high school that like comedy was his thing. You right, know? Right. For me, it didn't come till like, I didn't have that recognition until my th- early thirties. So there was like that period from being this wow. huge fan of Monty Python but then never pursuing anything. And then it was only in, in my 30s when I took a, an improv class kind of on a whim. And that kind of reignited this fire I had. And from the first writing class that I took, um, which was at Chicago City Limits, which was like a comedy improv theater in New York that doesn't exist anymore. There was no UCB back then. Yeah, that was down on First Avenue. Yeah, right. Like near where Dangerfield's yeah, right. comedy club was. But when I took that first writing class... Uh, it was a sketch writing class, like from the first class, a light went off and it was like, this is it. This is what I am going to be doing. Wow. Hold yeah. on one second. Yeah. We haven't been recording anything. No, it's just like there's <laughs> some. So wait, so was the Marx Brothers like the thing that first, <clears throat> made, the first thing that ever made you well, laugh? I, I, I. You know, probably the first thing that made me laugh was, you know, Bugs Bunny. Right, 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 right. It's yeah, just, yeah. you know, I think as children, and I watch my kid watch things, and he's now laughing at jokes, mm-hmm. like funny situations. He's right. four and four and a half. Wow. But he's he's laughing at things that are outside of what he had been laughing at for the past year and a half, okay. which was anytime anybody gets hit with anything. It's just America's Funniest Home Videos. Yes. That's what makes children. If you yeah. get, I guarantee the first time a caveman laughed, laughed, it was because he saw another caveman get kicked in the balls by a kid. Right. You know, that's just, yeah. ev- it's never not been funny to the human race. <laughs> it's true. You could so visualize that, right? So, you know, yeah. and, that's, and then the Three Stooges, you know, right. all, and, yeah. and most of that was, most of, most of the comedy there was just them hitting each other. Yeah. As you grew older, you saw and uh, and began to understand the the value and the actual comedy that came out of the this, the wealthy dowager and the straight. I mean, that's more like Marx mm-hmm. Brothers thing, but right. you know you understand how important that role is and how what they're doing is also funny under the circumstances, and you know why. Yeah. But before that, you're just like, oh my god, this guy just hit the other guy with a frying pan that's fucking classic and i don't even know what classic is <laughs> right <laughs> but but i used to love the marx brothers and um i don't think i told you this story 
when I was less than 10, I was probably eight, if that, I went out for Halloween as Harpo Marx. A, like an eight-year-old, I got like I had a little overcoat or whatever, probably oh my, my dad's big coat. That's fucking adorable. And and I, and my mom like powdered my hair a little more. I got right. a bike horn and held it under my coat. Oh my god! And one would go up to the door, and all the other kids would say trick or treat, and I would honk my horn. And I committed to that the whole way till I got out to the street and we're comparing what candy you got. Right. And the parents, you got, you got, you got no candy. I kept getting tons of candy because the parents were like, "That's great, that's fantastic, that's awesome." Yeah. So I was gonna say like it would have been like amazing if like you ran into like four other kids also dressed as Harpo Marx. Yes, was bound to happen. (laughs) (laughs) They all ended up becoming stand-up comedians as well. (laughs) So you took an improv. Improv class was the first thing, but not till mm-hmm. you're 30. So what do you, you're listening to comedy albums, you're going to... I'm appreciating, I'm a fan of comedy. You know, you know, uh, Monty Python, you go, you buy tickets to go to one of their shows, you enjoy it, you're thinking at that point, you're 18, you're late teens, that would be amazing to be able to do what they do, but you yes. just don't think it's a thing that is open to you. It's exactly. not even available. Right. Back then, did you think, like, I wouldn't be able to do that? Or were you thinking, like, that's just not a thing that, that you know, that's special people. That's yeah, special it, it would have, I think it would have been, like, thinking, like, oh, to be an astronaut would be really cool, but that, I'm just not going to be an astronaut, yeah, it's in you that, know? In yeah, that realm yeah, of, yeah like, it's just like, you know. So, yeah, it just didn't seem... It I'd wasn't, like to, it wasn't I'd like even, to be an astronaut, I, I but I'm not an idiot. Well, it wasn't even like I made the internal, the conscious internal mental calculation of like, hmm, could I do that? It was just, it just seemed like these were some unique individual, like no one else could do that. No one else could aspire to that. You know, it seemed, it, so it, it never occurred to me that one could aspire to that, even though I could imagine being them project myself and think how much fun they must be having but i didn't think it was possible for anyone to aspire to that right so yeah yeah that those are just people that already existed exactly they they didn't get there from wherever i am right right (laughs) right right yeah you couldn't like work your way to that so you went to so what did you do but in your 20s different jobs like i worked on wall street for about six years i was a stock Index, stock index trader really? on the floor of the New York Futures oh Exchange God. for like six years. Yeah. Was that and, like the screaming guy in the yes, pit? Yes, yes, oh, yeah. And I was like, Isn't totally, that like the super stress, most stressful job in it, the world? Um, I, it's not real. It's stressful. It's sort of like going to a casino every day and just gambling. Oh. And every day you either, you know, you come out ahead or behind. And I was so not cut out to do that, right, but right. somehow I hung on for super six years. Aggressive world, it, like. Yeah, and I'm not a super aggressive person that way, but I found my little niche. I and I was not a good trader. <laughs> That's the other thing. Like I wasn't good at it. I just did <laughs> like barely well enough to support myself in New York as a single guy in his twenties with a studio apartment. So I made just enough to kind of get by. But really, the only reason you should be doing that is like if you're getting incredibly filthy rich and I just wasn't doing, I wasn't at that level, right. you know, and I wasn't, I was, I'm like a yeah, risk that seem like a job you take I'm to ri- sustain yourself. Right, exactly. It's like, I probably could have done, I was doing like a better than if I was waiting tables, but not a whole lot better, you know, though oddly enough, I still will occasionally have a dream where I'm back on the trading floor 
making transactions. And it's always like one of these dreams where it's like you hit the jackpot and I've made a trade and it's going my way and I'm getting tons the of money. Yeah. And then it, I wake up and it's like, ah, oh, shit. You know? <laughs> I step on a mouse as when, I get out of when bed. When I was oh. working at SNL, there was a time because we had the summers off and I almost flirted with the idea of like, that would be kind of cool to like work at SNL eight months of the year. And then the other four, I could go to the trading floor and just trade for my own account, trade futures. But again, it's just like, you know, no, I'm better, better to stay away because I might have ended up losing everything I made at SNL. Sounds like Doug made a good choice. Hey, have you guys heard of this Twitter thing? Well, it's definitely a thing. And you can use it to keep up with pretty much everything, including the Kardashians. But before you go all highbrow on us, please consider following the podcast at Writer's Block Pod. May as well throw my feed into the mix at J.R. Havlin. That's J as in J.R. Havlin, R as in R. Havlin, H as in Havlin, A as in Avlin, D as in Vlan, L as in Lan, A as in Ann, and N as in N. You can also see what Doug has to say in 140 characters or less at Doug Abels. And of course, I will never stop encouraging you to support new talent. And that means giving young at Katy Perry a try. She's still sort of finding her legs, but that's what real art is all about. Let's move on, shall we? We shall. All right, we're back. I'm with Doug Abels. I want to talk about your career, uh, which started around uh, the early 30s, when mm -hmm. in your early 30s, not the early 30s. <laughs> Talking to Doug Abels. Well, they're, they're almost synonymous. <laughs> I, Octogenarian. I was in my early 30s in the 30s. No, so, not that old, but. I'll cut all that out. <laughs> I'm completely confused myself right now. Just, so in your early 30s, you took this uh, writing class. So the, say, now you realize, oh, this is something I not only have always wanted to do, but feel like I actually can do. How do you get your first job? Well, the writing class was taught by an amazing guy named Justin Stengel, who... Oh, wow, really? Yeah, and his brother Eric was in it, and they Before went Before he was on Letterman and stuff. Oh, like yeah, they, they didn't... He didn't have a, a job, and he was a wannabe writer himself. Right. And um, he was fantastic. Um, That's great. He's, and in addition to teaching this class, he had, four, he had already had his own little sketch comedy group, and he asked me to be a part of that as a, as a writer. Having um, read your stuff from his class. Yeah. Oh, yeah that's yeah. great. And so I was in this little sketch group and uh, we would put on our own, you know, write and produce our own shows, rent out a, you know, a little theater on, on West, oh shit, what was the street called? Uh, down in the West Village. Main Street? Main Street, that's it. <laughs> it was Main Street. And, and um, a couple of people in this sketch group, well, there was one, oh, Rodney Rothman was part of our oh, wow. group. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Beth Littleford was in our sketch group. Wow. Andy Dale, Andrew Daly, um, Chris Regan, who oh, wow. wrote at the Daly Show. I mean, it Chris was Chris like Regan this... was two episodes ago. Really? Yeah. Oh my God, that's crazy. You got to listen to that one. I will. It's great, actually. Well, uh, no, three. I'm three not going to listen to three it. Three episodes. Yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are going to love it. My wife actually got up to that one. Now she listened to it and she's like, "That one's a really good one. That was really fun to listen to." He's so funny. Yeah, well, we had a good time. I hadn't oh seen him for God. a while, and so just reminiscing about, yeah. uh, uh, about you know, he, he came on The Daily Show like a month after John got there. 
Oh, really? Yeah, wow. so it was, it was an interesting time to be a, a new writer there. Right. It was a right, more right. interesting time to be an old writer there <laughs> for various reasons. But uh, anyway, so you're working with all these people. Right. Who are, and we're a, all one, a, at that point, we're all aspiring to, yeah. to work. In, it turned out to be an impressive list of names. Yeah. And then, and Rodney, I think, was he, at the time he was in college, he was interning at SNL. Norm MacDonald was was anchoring Update, and Rodney started writing jokes for Norm and was starting to get jokes on. And then I guess that led to Justin and Eric submitting jokes to Norm, and they started getting jokes on. And so I just figured, and then Rodney got hired at Letterman, and then the Stangles got hired at Letterman, and I just kind of figured like, oh, I guess that's what you do. So Rodney arranged for me to start uh, submitting jokes to Update. Actually, first he started, he arranged for me to write, uh, to submit to Letterman. And I did that for like a couple of months and got nothing on. And I called Rodney. I'm like, Rodney, what should I do? And he's like, well, maybe you should take a break. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in other words, stop. Just don't do it anymore. Don't don't call me. Yeah. Um, But the thing that he said. Who is this and how did you get this number? The thing he said, and I had, you know, I had never tried to write a joke before. So, and now all of a sudden I'm like submitting, writing jokes and submitting them to Letterman. I like really had no business doing that. But, but the thing that Rodney said to me is he goes, you know, your jokes actually sound a little bit more like they would be good for Norm MacDonald. So I said, oh, well, can you arrange for me to fax in jokes there? Which he did very graciously. Uh, especially given the fact that I was an utter failure trying to write jokes for Letterman, but he still went ahead and set me up. And and this time I kind of really studied Norm MacDonald's weekend updates. Like I would record them every week and then transcribe them myself, you know, on, with my that. computer. Yeah. I've, I've and, recommended that to people. And, and it is an incredible process. Yeah. There's something about like transcribing it yourself, every little, uh, uh, mm, and, or at least for me, I really got the voice down. I mean, I would read them and reread and reread the transcripts. And, and so within a couple of months, you know, one night I was at home watching update and lo and behold you know he he did one of my jokes you know verbatim word for word and it was the most incredible probably in my entire career like the most ecstatic feeling i've ever had sitting there watching norm mcdonald do a joke yeah. that i had written i've for heard him. i've heard that too and i remember when bill Mar- bill maher would have been my first case of that mm-hmm. and uh, uh, though I don't, I have no zero recollection of the joke. Do you really? remember your first joke? That, that uh, yeah, Norm and did I, on the air? I do, and, but I, and I did it die? And did he stare no, into the camera did, for thirty no. seconds afterwards? <laughs> it did really With well. Unbelievable confidence. <laughs> um, the thing is, like, I cannot. Uh, this is where people get really, uh, really disappointed by me. I cannot tell a joke. I cannot. I'm not a raconteur. I told you that before we sat down to do this. And I can't tell jokes, but but I the joke that I wrote for Norm it had something to do with um, the figure. This is how long ago it was. The figure skater <laughs> Tanya Harding. Remember Tanya Harding? Of course, the, she's yeah. the one that whacked. She's still in the she's she's still, she's in still the reality around. World. I know. Well, I guess it was like the anniversary of that incident or whatever. Uh-huh. But she, at the time, I think she had been trying to make a comeback. So uh, and she had been like reapplying to skate for the u.s and the the, the u.s ice skating commission or whatever association turned her down but the punchline had something to do with uh i like to think this is the joke word for word (laughs) yeah 
It's a really... But it had something to do with the fact and that... Norm though, nailed it. Though, though, she, though she was turned down by the U.S. Skating Federation, she is going to be skating for the Republic of White Trashistan. Something like that, anyway. But it killed. It, That's great. No, believe it or not, Norm told it better than I just told yeah, it. Yeah, really? Yeah. Um, but it did really well. It like I think it got like a laugh break and, you know, an applause break. Did they bring up a map of white trash stand? Yeah, I think they did. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. They got graphics on that yeah, and everything. Yeah. And then and then the next week, uh, they used another one. What would the, what would the Republic of White Trash stand look like? Like it seems to me like the shape of it would be important. Like it would be uh, like a yeah. you know, like garbage can or <laughs> what would it be? Like a chicken leg, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know. I think yeah. chicken leg, but just some. Kind, <laughs> what would it be? It would be like a truck. It would look like a truck on. It would look like a, a truck tr- on blocks. That's it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. All right, Jeff Foxworthy. Our, our job is done. <laughs> well, you know, look, I'm just trying to trying to think of something funny here. <laughs> so that's a, your your first joke, and then that's kind of an in then to uh, um, to SNL, right? Well, yes and no. It in the six. Weeks like many of my jokes got used, and then some and you're shows 50 like bucks of uh, literally fifty bucks, yeah. which I was thrilled. Uh-huh. And and then some shows they were using two jokes in wow. per show, and so See, by that's the crazy end, crazy for a guy faxing in to get those kind of numbers. So are you starting? Are you thinking like um, I need to get a packet together? Well, for them? What, what I heard some so what I heard that the thing to do was to sort of try to get yourself a meeting with Norm. So by the end of that season, and this was in like 95, he had used enough of my stuff that somehow I finagled an invitation for me to come into the office and meet Norm. So there I am, I'm going into the office and it was sort of like weird, like I'm not there for, it wasn't like they were, I was coming in to be interviewed for a job. It was just this weird thing where I was just going into the office to meet him. So I, but you were called in by, yeah, but I kind of initiated it. <laughs> like yeah, it didn't, the, good, huh? it didn't come from them. I kind of broached it with his assistant and said, Hey, I've been getting a lot of jokes. Yeah. Can, can I, I can, meet him? can I come in? You know, and she arranged it. Great. So, uh, that was Lori Joe Huckstra. Um, <laughs> so, um, I came in, I was like super nervous and uh, I'm led into Norm's Weekend Update office, and he's there, and he introduces me to Jim Downey, who oh, wow. at that time was, he was producing Weekend Update, and they were sharing an office. I don't remember much, because I think I just went into like an altered state of, right. you know, I was just so in my head that I was actually there. I kind of couldn't believe it. But I remember there was like a hockey game on television. Norm's way into hockey. Norm was... And he probably glued. was gambling on that. Yes, game. exactly. <laughs> so he like never, like his gaze never left. And the TV was mounted on the ceiling, basically like in the corner. Uh-huh. So it was way up. So he was just staring up at this TV. But they, oh yeah, like looking up at it. Like, oh, no, go ahead. I'm listening. Yeah. So he like, we, he never made eye contact, uh, you know. Awkward. Um, but then super awkward. And then he's introduces me to Jim. Jim is like the nicest guy in the world. But then Norm... Jim's listening to the radio. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but then Norm tells Jim to tell me this funny joke that I guess Jim had been telling in the office. So that's like the worst possible scenario you is that laugh. you're, you're now there and now have to listen to someone tell a joke and 
they're waiting to see your reaction, uh-huh. you know? And, um, of course, Jim is like the greatest guy, you know, as I, I later on when I worked at SNL, I got to know him, but at this meeting, I really didn't, I didn't know him. And, and I'm in this horrible situation where I have to like, listen to him tell a joke and he, he's a good joke teller, <laughs> but, but, um, it was just awful. And yeah, then you're I, really I don't even think I was listening, you know, it was one of those, well, like the, you're not even here. Yeah. Sound isn't even being processed by your brain. Right. I'm just looking to a guy and I see his mouth moving, but no sound is coming in. And I <laughs> hope that I laughed at the appropriate place, but Something about white trash is standing. Yes, it was. That. Yes, um, and and you know, then I said goodbye, and and that was kind of it. And then the next season, I started out writing, submitting jokes, you know, more jokes. And it was that next season that Norm ended up getting fired halfway through, but that didn't lead the thing. I, it didn't lead to me getting hired there right away. That only came like several years later. Wow, um, what a weird little meeting. Yeah, though I did end up getting hired. There was a year where Norm hosted the ESPY Awards. It oh, was okay. kind of an infamous yeah, gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the writers at SNL, Hugh Fink, who I was oh, friends yeah, I love with, you. What a great he was the was. head writer for the ESPYs. Yeah. And he was gracious enough to hire me because he knew that I had been getting jokes, writing jokes for Norm. So he hired me. At the time, I was I had a full time job working at a newspaper. I had left Wall Street, and now I was working in telemarketing for a small business newspaper. So I was able to take a leave of absence from that job for three weeks to work on the ESPYS. All the other writers on that gig were like the creme de la creme of comedy variety writers in was New I York. Was I there? I don't. You were not there. I Some don't know place. what that something put, was yeah, horribly. You, you yeah. never thought you could be put more on the spot than having to listen to somebody tell a joke. <laughs> so you. But, so you, so you, there I am. Yeah. Among um, all these heavy hitters. Yeah. And, and, and it was assholes. so much fun. Huge assholes. Um, Frank Sebastiano was there, who was writing for Norm um, and Ross Abrash, and like the best Letterman writers, um, Conan and Chris Rock. writer. You know, it was just. Yeah, right. I was like, over, it was overwhelming to be like in this kind of heady company but it was fantastic and that helped get me like other sort of get my first tv writing full-time staff writing job which then, was which at would, SNL no no oh. which was out in LA I got hired to write on the magic hour with magic johnson oh right yeah, yeah that's what you're telling it, me with it was crazy like, uncle craig shoemaker yes and, uh, and everybody's was, got a crazy uncle <laughs> <laughs> And I was so excited to like that, get my first staff writing job. I moved, you know, my wife and I moved to LA. I had an eight week deal for five weeks for pre-production. And um, after five weeks, they had to let me know if they were going to rehire me. So the show hadn't even started. We were still like figuring out what the show was. And after five weeks, they came to me and they were like, we have to cut our budget and we can't, we're so sorry, but we can't keep you. had moved out there. I had moved out there and I remember feeling utterly devastated. Like now what am I going to do? You know? Um, And I was so bummed because I felt like I haven't even like had a chance to kind of prove myself and show them what I can do, you know? And so that was really hard. Uh, It was like crushing to be fired from the magic hour, uh, which, you know, and then, then I, until you saw the magic hour, then you're like, oh oh my God, (laughs) I can remember being out there and like, once the show 
started and then Howard Stern show quickly became every day just uh, dissecting, yeah. taking apart what had happened the previous evening on the magic hour. Like that's all Howard Stern that's did so for funny. like weeks, you know. So real quickly, but, you go, yeah. the, the, you, this is obviously a, not a high point. No. So, so, so what is your next job and how do you manage getting that? I mean, are you now reaching out to some of these friends that you've known? That a little know? bit, yeah. So the next Did you job have anything ended, in mind? Did you have a spec script written? Did you know no. even what you're supposed to do to try to get a job? I knew that I liked comedy variety, so that seemed sort of the area to stay in. So prior to taking the Magic Hour job, I had submitted to Politically Incorrect and was told that I came close to getting hired. So um, I had a friend there that was on staff, K.P. Anderson, Great guy, really funny guy. Didn't know him. He knew he was on the way out, and he gave me a heads up. He's like, hey, I'm going to be fired, or fired oh, wow. I think, yeah. And he was like, so there's going to be a slot opening. You know, maybe you should submit. So right. I put together a new submission, you know, uh, and I ended up getting hired there. Wow. For that. Great. Yeah. So then I how, left. How much later was that after the... It wasn't long. It was within a month or something. Wow. I, I didn't have a lot of downtime, which was great. And then I worked there and, you know, they hire you on a three-month cycle. Right. So I made it through the first three Everybody months. Everybody does, really. I mean, I was at the Daily Show yeah. on a three-month cycle for 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd we're hang it over my not, head every time. We're, we know the last 13 years went well, but let's just, we're still not sure. So let's we, just see how it goes for the next cycle. Let's jump the gun. Just yeah. sign here, initial yeah. here. So um, I went to Politically Incorrect and really enjoyed the... The staff there, the guys were great. Mm -hmm. uh, Danny Vermont was there, and he actually was kind of, not kind of, he was really helpful in getting me hired there as well. He put in a good word for me. And Did you and know him beforehand? I knew someone who knew him. Okay. So, yeah, I didn't know him personally, but he, he was wonderful. He really did me a solid, and um, and I got hired there. And But my whole time there, I was there for three cycles, and I was always like, I wasn't getting a lot on you know, maybe one joke per episode. And I wasn't good in the room. I was so intimidated by right. Bill. So I was quiet in the room and that wasn't good. And I can remember at the end of my third cycle, Bill's secretary assistant came over and said, you know, Bill wants to see you in his office. And uh, I knew like, this I, is and, not... And you're like, um, I have an opening uh, yeah, half a year from now. <laughs> <laughs> can you make that? Um, so I sit down in his office and Bill is like, Hey, we, we really like you and everyone here really likes you. And, um, you know, this is a really tough decision, but, uh, you know, we're not going to renew your contract. You know, maybe you can go out and this has happened to a lot of other writers, you know, who, who we didn't renew. They go on, they go somewhere else and get a little more seasoning and then they come back. He goes, I hope we can do that with you. But it was was very close. This was the thing that killed me. He goes, you missed by this much and, you know, sort of holding his fingers an inch apart. Like, you just missed getting re-upped. Thanks for that. Uh, it's like, yeah, that kind of made it worse. But like but I was telling you, I've worked with Bill, and, and that is actually amazing that he would even go out of his way to give you that much. No, I mean, I totally agree. Like, just the fact that he was the person that... he showed that, any compassion at yes, all. Yes, that he was <laughs> like, it was like, uh, believe me, I've 
had similar <laughs> situations over the course of my career. And he's the only person like that sat down face to face and said great. like, you got to give it up. For you that. know, I totally, I, I really, to you know, actually will always respect him for that. Plus I, you know, I just think he's brilliantly funny and talented and, you know, but you don't have but, to say that anymore. I won't. Okay. Yeah. No. I'm. I'm. I'm hoping to get higher. <laughs> well. There again. Well. This. Uh, this all sounds like uh, the beginning of a promising comedy writing career. <laughs> and we will take a little break and come back and try to figure out how you're still working, <laughs> given given this given yeah. this launch of being fired from everything that you were doing right i yeah, love this it is, this is horrible I'm, this is terrible self-promotion <laughs> you're right all right we'll be right back with doug abels hardship it's all part of the deal we've heard it before but if you have persistence a realistic belief in your talent and the ability to focus on your strengths you like doug can muddle through and find your place I want to remind you of a great exercise Doug brought up in that segment, and that is transcribing your favorite show's monologue and sketches so that you can actually see what they look like on the page and hear and feel what they sound like when you read them back to yourself out loud. Highly recommended. And if you haven't listened to the Chris Regan episode I mentioned, definitely check it out. The little things on the side of your head that allow you to hear will thank you for it. Now let's wrap things up with how Doug finally landed a staff job at SNL and some of the experiences he had there. You're listening to Writer's Block with my guest, Doug Abels. All right, here we are, Doug Abels, in Doug Abels' apartment, this is, which is set up for podcasting. Yeah, when I, um, when I took this apartment, I... I um, I wanted a place that would sort of be conducive to podcasts. Right. Um, that was knew. four years ago. Right. And I've never, there's never, no one's ever asked me to do a podcast, but I wanted to be ready yeah. if that ever happened. And it's you good. are the first person to ever, who was asked to do a podcast. So it now I feel the, my decision four years ago has like finally yeah. been justified. For four years, you've been explaining to people why you have egg cartons all over your exactly. walls. Yes. <laughs> very, it'll, it'll happen. It's going to happen it's one day. Happen. I Someone is going to want to do a podcast with yes. me in this apartment. And when it does, there I, will be no need, echo. You need to be ready. So we were talking about uh, your less than uh, promising start. You got a couple of gigs, but then get let go of them for, mm -hmm. from them for various reasons, even right. if you're that close. Right, right. And it's got to be distressing. And yeah. are you thinking now, like, that you can't do this? Or are you thinking, like, you know what? I'm I'm good at this. I just kind of have to, like, the first, the magic hour thing was just a thing. Yeah. And that doesn't matter. The The other thing I have to think, like, maybe I just wasn't the right fit. I Yeah, I think that's what it was. Like, now, so then do you adjust your attack on where you're going to go? Um, a, a little bit. I guess because I got a lot of jokes on with Norm. He used a lot of my stuff. And that did give me like a lot of confidence that I was writing good stuff, you know? Right. And um, so, yeah, I, I did have that confidence and yeah, and it was just a matter of like, this is just not the right fit. And with uh, politically incorrect, it was, you really had to be really good in the room, you know, during the, I mean, it wasn't just sitting in your office writing jokes all day. That was part of it. But then we had these daily meetings where you're, you know, as you probably remember, you know, you were there where you're, you know, in a conference room and you're talking about the various topics and you've got to be really good in that room. And I, because I didn't have the, I didn't come from a stand-up comedy background, I wasn't a performer, that situation is a situation that really does 
lend itself to to those guys who are used to kind of commanding a room and uh i just felt so intimidated by that yeah situation and that, be, and that is there's not necessarily anything you can do about that if you're not that guy and that but that can be an achilles heel because yeah you know i know that for me it was probably one of my biggest strengths coming mm -hmm. up and you know working with me just for a short period of time that you i don't can't. shut up a lot yeah no uh but no. what i'm saying is normally at least a little bit helpful i hope but yeah. I, I, yeah i have no. almost zero filter when it comes to those things because <laughs> i feel like what the fuck else am i what am i doing here right because like if you don't want my opinion tell me to shut up or fire me or whatever but see i if wish you're gonna i hire I'm, me then, then listen I, to what i have to say i i i wish i i just sort of tend to clam up and sit quietly and i mean even at snl when we would kind of all most of the work at SNL, you know, I'm sitting in an office. And you, you got writing. this job, but you, so we'll, we'll, we'll cut to the chase on the SNL. You end up getting the SNL job. So now you move right. back to New York. Right, right, right. And you're hired at the, on, on a weekend update side, which right, makes sense right. because so you're not doing sketch, you're just doing the weekend update. Correct, yes. So I've talked to Charlie Grandy. Did you work with Charlie at we all? Were, we started the same year, 2001 okay. season, beginning of the 2001 season. And he season. worked for a couple of years before he actually started running the, that department for the most part, right? Um, no, he had been at, he came from The Daily Show. Yeah, right. And we both started in, in the fall of 2001 okay. at, at SNL. Beautiful time. Beautiful time here in New yeah. York. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah. Do oh, that's right. You said that? you started like a month before. In, well, in a few weeks before, right? 9 11. Oh, yeah. So the, um, my first show was the first <laughs> SNL show after 9 11, when we're, where Giuliani came. Oh, yeah. On that was a and, great joke. And, and I remember it's funny because usually the writers do not watch the show from the floor. Yeah. But I, I don't know what got into me, but I was just like, fuck it. I want to be on the floor to watch this. Uh, opening of the show right and so i was standing on the studio floor watching the whole thing with lauren and giuliani and paul simon and the fire department and the police department were all there and it was that you know one of those rare times that this is like a, a historic special moment you know that i'm witnessing right and part of right now it was really moving and um it was quite yeah it was like an amazing show to have be your did first you get any show. jokes on that night i I did. Yes, <laughs> there I did. You go. Yeah. Let's get to the important part of this. What, the joke. <laughs> the joke. I had a joke. There was a guy. So there was already, you know, this is now. It's in the weeks immediately after nine eleven, right. and there was a story about a guy, a restaurant owner in Texas or something, who had a, a restaurant named Osama's Place. Once again, by the way, I just want to let listeners know you're about to hear a the terrible, incredible. <laughs> Joke telling skills of Doug Abel's and go. Here they come. Yeah, I cannot tell Strap a joke. yourselves in, but everybody. There, so there was a, the story was that there was a guy in Texas who owned a restaurant called Osama's Place. And I guess there was a groundswell of controversy that he should close his restaurant or renamed it because it was named, you know, it made people think of Osama bin Laden. And, um, oh, yeah. And uh, I wrote a joke, something like, you know, there, no word yet on his other restaurant. What will happen with his other restaurant? Hitler's chicken. Hitler's. Just and and um, <laughs> that got a really got a really big laugh. Yeah, it's yeah. a good joke, right? So there. because you want it, that's that's you know the important part of of coming back on a show like that after the, is, is to go ahead and have something that, that acknowledges. Yes. It, but then, but then. Yeah. 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 yeah.
Yeah, so good. You, you, yeah, you, that was a big relief, you know, just getting the first. So one. you were. So I, I mentioned Charlie because uh, I encourage listeners to go back and listen to that if you haven't, or listen to it again if you want to get kind of a better idea of the the day to day of uh, SNL Weekend Update in particular. So I'm not going to um, burden Doug with uh, too much of that, except to get uh, just a little bit of a vibe of what it was like to be more kind of um, in the trenches of it as just a writer for that and the pressures of that weird schedule that they yeah. had. One thing I read just vis-a-vis Charlie, I Oh, you remember... had told me a story actually about leaving early that one night too and or something? Oh, that was like my first week there. <laughs> yeah. I, I had no idea like what, what the what, schedule yeah. was. Right. And um, it was the Friday before the first show of the, that season in 2000, fall of 2001, and I had been there, you know, all day writing jokes and then, you know, more jokes and then another round of jokes. And, and nobody telling you you can go home or have to stay. No, I had like no that. idea. Like, so I think it was probably around 10 o'clock at night and I just packed up my stuff and headed over to the elevator. And um, now that I'm saying this, I kind of re- I'm realizing I think that Larry David maybe sort of there was a similar story with Larry David where he kind of did the same thing. But anyway, I'm at the elevator at on Friday night at like 10 o'clock and um, Mike Shoemaker, who was like the senior producer there and was kind of overseeing weekend update among everything else. Um, he sees me waiting for the elevator. <laughs> He's like, Hey, uh, where are you going? <laughs> and uh, I, I said, I'm going home. And he had this funny look on his face. Like, that's not what you're supposed to be that's doing. Not, that's not a thing we do here. But yeah. And, but he didn't stop me. He was just like, Oh, okay. Um, we might need you to write more stuff. And, uh, and I just said, okay, I'll just, I'll write from home, I guess. And, uh, and he let me go out and I went home and did indeed have to write more stuff from home, you know, up until like one in the morning or whatever. Did you get like an email or something? Yeah. And I just sent in more stuff and I I kind of model, just like more weekend update jokes. And in fact, that is, it was that, that was when I wrote the Hitler's chicken joke well there you go that's so, when the magic comes yeah. at, when you're tired and don't want to but, be there but then i i realized after that like oh you can't leave until they tell you right to leave now so. did they did they feed you the osama's place setup or did you find the was there a combination of getting fed the setups and finding yeah. your own scott weinstein who's has been there he was there before i got there he's still there he's like this amazing producer but back then his job one of his jobs was to supply the writers with, you know, pages, reams of stories. So I probably got it from that. You know, we pulled the setups, you know, and and that's like a huge time saver because then you just, you'd get this like packet of stories that Charlie probably talked about. Yeah. And that, that happens with uh, like on the Tonight Show as well. I just Mm -hmm. talked to um, my friend Jason Ross, who's working over there. And yeah, there are people whose job it is to compile these setups so you get yeah. the setups and you can massage them you can use other setups yeah you can do whatever you want but you know first things first you just go ahead and look at those and and dive into them and yeah. for me usually that's more than half the work because not only do you have to find them you have to determine whether or not they're the ones that they want to hear something on yeah so to get fed these things it's sort of like i'll give you a great punchline off of this i mean the greatest punchline ever <laughs> that you've ever seen and and i'll do it with the confidence that you know look you fed me. I assume this is what you want, right? Because you gave it to me. So what a relief for a writer! My God. Yes, I've never been in that position for for anyone well, except sort of, for anyone I'm... except me. I was sort of so scared 
that I would like miss a story that in addition to that huge packet, I would still comb through all the papers myself. And it was so time intensive that, you know, eventually I kind of learned not to do that and just rely more on the packet. But right. yeah, it was because it was just like insane. It was like this paranoia that I had to look and know, be aware of every single right. story, big or small. So on the on any given week, you would have Sundays off, obviously. Mm -hmm. Would you go in on Monday and start writing jokes on Monday? Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, and were you writing those jokes with the idea of like, this is Monday, none of these jokes are going to get on? I mean, did you ever, do you ever remember writing a Monday joke that got on Saturday? I can remember writing a joke on a Saturday while the show was still on. I, it was after Weekend Update. Okay, Weekend Update had happened. I, I think I got... No, I didn't get a joke on or I only got one joke on and I was like furious. I went up to my office and I started looking online for new stories. I found a story. I wrote a joke for the next week's show and it got on the next week's Did show. Did you submit it I, on Monday? Yeah, I think so. It yeah, it, wow. yeah. yeah. Wow. But in general... I'd say, yeah, if you, I, I mean, I never did a statistical analysis, but probably there's more stuff that's written towards, yeah. stuff that's written towards the end of the well, week it's, it's, is it's, more likely it, to get it's on. More, it's more timely. But, it's also fresher in your head. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Not having read it before. There's one moment at, when I was on Update where, I saw, uh, where something sort of clicked for me in terms of writing. This is when Tina and Jimmy were anchoring Update. And I had written a joke. This is like sort of what made me kind of get Tina's voice. There was a story about a study that found that, um, and I'm probably getting the statistic wrong, but it was like, you know, 60% of women are unhappy with the appearance of their vaginas. Uh, <laughs> and I wrote a joke, the punchline, which was, and from what I've seen, they're right. <laughs> um, I wrote that joke thinking like, oh, um, I should write this for Jimmy. So I like actually specified that this was a Jimmy Fallon joke. Cause I'm like, oh, Tina wouldn't do that joke. Like it's a what when you think and, about it though, obviously. It's and then of course, of again. course. This is like, you know, part of the learning curve. And the joke got picked, but it was Tina that did that joke. And she killed with it. It did really well. And she delivered it so well. And that was sort of what made me real like then I kind of like, oh yeah, of course. Then that's, that's when I joke. realized I'm sexist. <laughs> I'm <am> so sexist. <laughs> Exactly. Um, <laughs> but that that was sort of like, ah, oh, all right, now I think I get it. Right. You know, like, of course she should be doing that joke and not Jimmy. You know? And then you recognize that and, yeah. and alter how you yeah. how you approach it afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And then was fired the following week. But no. <laughs> <laughs> and then hired the week after that. Exactly. At the Magic Hour. Yes. Which was still on. Still Somehow. on. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> So, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up. We got to go. Uh, uh, it would be fun to talk more about that, but uh, I'm glad we got the opportunity to sit down. It was good to hear uh, your, your story, and um, I appreciate your time. Thanks. Oh, this has been a lot of fun. Good, good. Now you got to go pick up your kid. I do. Yeah. Beautiful. This is just, <laughs> life, life. Just or keeps I could just blow. You know what? Keep it's all right. Off. Let's Forget just keep it. going for another He'll hour. You'll understand. You're listening to 105.1 now. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have everything. He'll, he'll be okay with that. Yeah. All right. This is uh, J.R. Havlin, and my guest was Doug Abels. Say goodnight, Doug. Good night. That's it. Episode 43 is locked and loaded. Thanks to Doug Abels for sharing, which, as I'm sure you all know, is caring. 
Now go back and listen to that Charlie Grandy episode I mentioned, but only after you listen to the Chris Regan episode I mentioned. Until next time, thanks for listening. Say goodnight, blockheads. Thank you.